This edition of The Wellness Prescription is brought to you by Healthy Planet, making the world healthier and greener one day at a time. Welcome to The Wellness Prescription on 105.9 The Region. I'm Dr. Claudia. Thank you for joining me today. This week, we will discuss a very important topic, one that deserves much attention since knowing the facts about this condition and treatment options can save lives. Thrombosis affects approximately 200,000 people each year. Blood clots are the underlying cause of the top three cardiovascular killers in Canada, including heart attack, stroke, and VTE. My guests today are hematologist Dr. Mark Carrier and thrombosis survivor Erica Ramsey. Thank you both for being here today. Thank you for having us. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. This is a Thrombosis Awareness Month, so I thought it would be fitting to kind of have a show dedicated to the conversation. I thought, though, we could start with Dr. Carrier explaining to all of the listeners what is thrombosis and how common is it? Thrombosis is basically a blood clot and it's very common. It can happen on the arterial side and sometimes there's more public awareness to heart and stroke, for example, heart attacks and stroke. And it can also happen on the venous side. And there's a little bit less knowledge about venous clots, but they're quite common in the population and will affect 200,000 patients in Canada over the next year. On the venous side, they usually start in one of the lower limbs and then they can mobilize and travel. They get stuck into your lungs. So they're the two ends of the same tube. When it's in the lower limb, it's called a deep vein thrombosis and will affect the limb. So you'll have swelling, pain, redness of the leg. And when it travels to the lungs, then it blocks one of the palmy artery and people will have shortness of breath and chest pain. And that's called a pulmonary embolism. And now when it happens in the lower limb, is it 100% certain that it's going to travel and eventually make it to the lungs or do they often clear on their own? They usually will start in the lower limb and sometimes there's no symptoms or you have minimal symptoms, but you'll develop chest pain and shortness of breath. But these blood clots don't get better on their own. They need to, when you have the symptoms, they need, patients need to seek medical attention, have proper diagnosis. And even when we're, we're waiting for an ultrasound, for example, or a CAT scan to make the diagnosis, we start blood thinners right away because these are urgent matter. What is the main cause? Is it trauma? Is it some underlying health condition? Um, or is it both? Sometimes these venous clots can be labeled as provoked. So you mentioned trauma, cast, immobility, hospitalization, for example. All the patients admitted to hospitals have small dose of blood thinners to prevent them. Cancer is another important provoking factor, but they only explain about 40% of them. In a large majority, 50, 60% of cases, they just happen out of the blue. That's very interesting. And I find that in my own practice, I'm noticing a lot more patients coming in and I'm always wary of if they're describing pain, the lower limbs. But I'm curious about Erica. So you are a thrombosis survivor. When were you diagnosed and how did you get diagnosed? And I think the bigger question is what type did you have? So start with whatever question you want to answer first. Back in December 2022, I was diagnosed with thyroid cancer. A few months later in February, I had a total thyroidectomy. Three days later, I went back to eMERGE because I thought I had a DVT. 
Um, I had excruciating leg pain. I couldn't touch it. I couldn't walk. I had swelling in my legs and I also started to develop shortness of breath. They did an ultrasound of my leg and they did a chest x-ray and it came back inconclusive. Some of my blood counts that might indicate a DVT were elevated, but he told me that they believed it was just from inflammation and stress on my body from the surgery and that I shouldn't be worried and sent me home. About a week later, I had my stitches out for my thyroid and I was still experiencing all of those symptoms. So I made sure to tell my surgeon again what was happening and what I thought was wrong. And she sent me the same day for an ultrasound of both my legs and it came back negative. But a week after that, my leg pain completely disappeared. I thought it was just a mishap from surgery. Maybe it was because my dog was sleeping on my feet and it just caused a leg cramp. Like, I couldn't really figure it out. But then I was getting ready for my dentist appointment on February 22nd, and I suddenly began to experience severe shortness of breath, accompanied by severe sharp pain in the left side of my chest. And then panic started to set in as I was struggling to breathe. I felt cool, clammy. I started sweating profusely. And my husband said that my skin had a grayish tinge to it. So we called for an EMS. They did their assessment. The only thing that we noticed was a little off was that my oxygen was a little low. But it wasn't enough to warrant them a transfer to the hospital. So at the time, I declined the transfer because my symptoms had subsided. And I thought maybe it was just... These symptoms are because of my new thyroid meds. Maybe they're too high. So I was going to go to my doctor's the next day and have them switch my dose. And I decided to go to bed at 4 p.m., which is very uncharacteristic for me. <laughs> but I just wanted to rest because I wasn't feeling well. And while I was sleeping, I all of a sudden woke up with my like heart pounding out of my chest. And I felt uncomfortable. So I put on my watch to check for my heart rate and it said my heart rate was 140 which was very alarming but I also didn't believe it I thought it was an error there's no way my heart rate's that high while I'm sleeping and I went back to bed and I kept getting waking up with high heart rate alerts for probably another two or three hours so then I started to think you know maybe this is right maybe it's not an error and I got up to get something to eat go to the bathroom. I haven't been up all day and my heart rate went up to 200. And then I started experiencing all those symptoms again. So I called my mom and we went to the hospital. And when I got to the hospital, that's when they did some more blood work and they did a chest CT. And that's when I got my diagnosis of a submassive saddle embolism with prominent bilateral emboli scattered throughout both my lungs. Did you end up staying in the hospital? And what was your treatment following that? Because that was a that was about a week before you were, you know, confirmed that you had a thrombosis. All in all, it was about a span of a three weeks apart. My surgery is on the sixth. Um, but when I got diagnosed with the blood clots, I stayed in the hospital for about three days. They put me on a medication called heparin until it was safe to switch me over to another medication. Then they sent me home with little instruction on what to do next. And unfortunately, I ended up back in the hospital 24 hours later because it felt like the symptoms were happening all over again and they were worse. But a large part of it could have just been anxiety of being at home and not knowing what to do. So I spent another 24 hours in the hospital. Now, Dr. Carrier, is that 
a typical scenario or do we often diagnose, you know, thrombosis and blood clots much more quickly than that? As you heard, the symptoms of deep vein thrombosis or pulmonary embolism, they're, they're quite variable and different people will present with different signs and symptoms. So it's not unusual that in my clinic, for me, it's easy because this is what I do for a living, but it's not unusual for patients that have to have seek medical attention at different time point with different symptoms. And when you're a young, healthy person, you know, thrombosis is not always on the top of the list of the differential diagnoses that emergency room doctors or family doctors will think about. They'll think about other things. Erica presented with leg pain, and when ultrasounds were done, they couldn't see anything, probably because by that time, the clot had moved to the lungs and started to build up, which led to the symptoms eventually. Um, and what you're describing, Erica, is completely normal. Once we have a big load of clot on the lungs, it takes a while for the clot to slowly get better over time. So I often say to my patients, don't expect much of a difference on a day-to-day -day basis. It's more on a week-to-week -week basis, and it takes three to six months to get rid of these clots on imaging. So we need to be patient with the symptoms. Now, Erica, do you mind telling us, um, are you still on medication? Um, what's What happened after that? My surgery was in February of 2023. So I'm about eight months out now. And I, originally when I came out of the hospital, they put me on an injectable called anoxaparin for my blood thinner. And unfortunately, three weeks later, I found out that I was severely allergic to it and ended up getting readmitted to the hospital with a severe drug rash. So then they transitioned me over to, I guess, an old school blood thinner called Warfarin. And I've been on that ever since. And I continue to use that as well. And I've also recently just to like kind of help with my rehabilitation to hopefully go back to work. I started rehab because I'm still struggling a lot with some symptoms afterwards where my heart rate's still very elevated with very minimal activity. I have a hard time lifting weights more than five pounds without my heart rate skyrocketing. I have a really hard time climbing stairs. I mean, walking has improved a little bit, but I still struggle a lot with that. And my heart rate and shortness of breath still get very bad on exertion. And so you'll be on medication continuously for a while longer? Uh, we don't have a stop date yet for my medication. The last time they did some imaging, they saw that my big clot, the saddle, was gone, which is great. But I still had some smaller ones in the lower, like further away lobes of my like lungs. So we have to do some more imaging. And... Unfortunately, I also developed pulmonary hypertension and right-sided heart strain from my embolism and other blood clots. So I'm also seeing a doctor at UHN at the pulmonary hypertension clinic where they'll reassess that to see in February if my clots aren't gone. I might still have to have an open chest surgery to remove the clots if they don't dissolve naturally. Or I might have to have a right heart cath to better understand if I still have that pulmonary hypertension. And now, Dr. Carrier, is uh, once again, is this typical? Like, how long would somebody following the diagnosis of a thrombosis, how long would they necessarily have to be on anticoagulants and drugs to prevent the blood from coagulating? And are people now, once you have it, is Erica susceptible for the rest of her life? 
right? So we usually start a blood thinner or a, an anticoagulant as soon as we suspect a diagnosis to make sure that the body has everything it needs to slowly resorb the clot over time. We usually commit to a three to six month time frame before reassessing. And the reason for that is because it takes 12 to 24 weeks before we can actually see resolution of the clot on imaging. Before then, you know, the body's finding alternative route and compensating in different ways, but you need at least for sure three to six months of anticoagulation. If there's a good reason why you had the clot, uh, if it was from trauma, cast, immobility, for example, then we usually stop after three months because if the underlying risk is no longer present, it was transition transitional over time, then the risk of having another clot is probably similar to what it is for the general population. If the risk factors are ongoing, or if you had no risk factors at all, this clot happened out of the blue, then we treat for at least six months. And at six months, we make a decision, what's the risk of having another blood clot? And what's the risk of bleeding on the blood thinners? And based on the risk-benefit ratio in discussion with the patient, including patient's preference, then we make a decision about continuing for what we call secondary prevention or preventing a second clot from happening or discontinuing at that time. The reason why we use the blood thinners as soon as possible is, as I mentioned, to to try to favor reabsorption of the clot to avoid the symptoms that Erica has been describing. So we want to avoid, if you have a clot in the lower limbs, you can develop something called post-thrombotic syndrome, which is limb heaviness, dull achy pain, chronic swelling of the limb that really affects quality of life. If you have a big pulmonary embolism like Erica, some people will develop post-PE syndrome. So that would be residual symptoms, shortness of breath, exercise intolerance, uh, ongoing symptoms that affect quality of life, and a small proportion of patients will eventually develop what we call pulmonary hypertension. Because you had obstruction of the pulmonary arteries, the right side of the heart dilates, and that leads to chronic symptoms, which seems to be happening here. And then there's different ways to mitigate this. Surgery is one of them, and making sure that all the other areas are covered, but that's what we're trying to avoid. It sounds like, you know, it's going to be individual for each person and we're trying to avoid getting to the point where you have multiples or you have a predisposition to thrombosis. When we come back, more on thrombosis and Thrombosis Canada. This is the Wellness Prescription on 105.9 The Region. Stay with us. Connect with us on Twitter at 105.9 The Region or call 416-335-1059 or email info at 1059theregion.com. This is 105.9 The Region. The Wellness Prescription with Dr. Claudia on 105.9 The Region. You're listening to 105.9 The Region. Welcome back to The Wellness Prescription. Before the break, we heard from hematologist Dr. Mark Carrier and thrombosis survivor Erica Ramsey about the causes of thrombo thrombosis and the risk factors. However, there are treatments as well as organizations that are working hard to bring awareness about this condition. Thrombosis Canada is helping us understand the use of anticoagulant drugs in the treatment of thrombosis. So I'm going to start with Dr. Carrier. We already know that right away, as soon as you are diagnosed, you start on blood thinners. And we, you mentioned previous to the interview that warfarin was something that they used, you know, a few years back, but I'm sure we've made advances. So what would be a typical anticoagulant drug that you would prescribe immediately? 
So for venous thrombosis, we can use an injectable form of a blood thinner through an IV perfusion or a subcutaneous injection, and that would be different types of heparins. And that would usually bridge to uh, warfarin or a vitamin K antagonist, so older type of blood thinners that we still use in many different indications depending on the different parameters of patients and the underlying clots. And then we also have what we call direct oral anticoagulants. So these are blood thinners that, unlike the older form, are more specific in their action. Warfarin used to inhibit vitamin K-dependent coagulation factors, so we need to be mindful of diet genetic, and everybody needs a different dose. So we need to go for blood work on a regular basis we're on, when we're on warfarin or coumadin. For the directal anticoagulant, it's so specific, it's a one-dose-fits-all. And then we start the medication right away if the patient does not require hospitalization and continue at different dosing up to the three to six-month mark when, when we make a decision about continuing or discontinuing the medication. Now, how important is compliance in, um, you know, <laughs> reducing your risks of, you know, having another deep vein or arterial thrombosis? How important is it and how much um, compliance is there really in patients? Compliance is very important. And Erica had a big clot in her lung, so she required hospitalization. But I would say that most patients with a blood clot in their lower limb, so a deep vein thrombosis, would be treated as an outpatient. And probably 50-60% of people with clots in their lungs can be managed as outpatients too. And that there's been a transition in care over the past 15 years. So when I started practice, everybody was admitted to hospital, put on a perfusion or an injection, admitted to hospital three to five days to bridge you to the warfarin medication. Now that we have made a lot of progress scientifically with the different medications, people are seeing me in clinics started on a medication going back home right away. So it's important for clinicians, hematologists, thrombosis specialists, general internists, family doctors to really, you know, understand for the patient to make understand the disease and the risk, because the risk of recurrent clots or the risk of bleeding is front loaded. So that will decrease over time, but the first month is really important to be very compliant with the medication, have close follow-up to ensure there's no complications. And then if you stop too many of your tablets, then the risk of having another blood clot or having troubles uh, is really high. And so in the situation, the case of Erica, who had a severe case, uh, hers was hers occurred post-surgery. Um, I have a, uh, my own client who fractured her foot and ended up with a thrombosis as well. Is that a different, are they different because of the severity? Is it different? You're treating it differently, obviously. Uh, but is the course of treatment going to be the same for either person? It's a great question. And we tend to lump lower limb DVTs and PEs in the same category of venous thrombosis. So generally, they're treated in a very similar way for the case of your client, because there's a transition risk factor with immobility and cast, three months of anticoagulation with blood thinners, and then reassessment based on symptoms and other things to make a decision and probably discontinue anticoagulation would be the course of action. When you have a big clot in your lungs, this is a threat to life. So you need to be in a hospital uh, to have monitoring. The reason why Erica was on IV medication was in case if she was 
turning the wrong corner and deteriorating. So we have other alternatives that we can uh, provide to patient at that time. But also after the six months of anticoagulation, if they're still undergoing symptoms and then we're you know, having chronic complication, then we may have to continue anticoagulation longer to avoid any additional clots because if more would happen, it would make Erica's pulmonary hypertension worse over time. So there's risk factors, there's ongoing symptoms and or complication that are into the mix and obviously patient's preference because uh, patients will have very polarized discussions. Sometimes I, I, I want a patient to continue and they want to stop at all costs. And sometimes I feel comfortable stopping and the patient want to continue depending on, on preference and, and their way of life. That's a really good point. Now, Erica, in your case, if you don't mind us asking, you know, we, we kind of heard about how your life has changed a little bit and you're in the process of kind of rehabilitating your, you know, the physical component of what happened to you. But how has this affected your mental health? Um, are you, you know, be feeling positive about it? Are you confident that you're going to get better? Or are you kind of always living with a little bit of that worry that you're going to have another incident? Mentally also has been very struggling or like I've struggled very much with it. I constantly worry about the possibility that my PE is going to return. When I received my initial diagnosis, I was overwhelmed with fear and anxiety. The medical information I was hearing felt very surreal to me. I had trouble sleeping, um, just worrying like if something was going to happen while I was sleeping, am I even going to wake up in the morning? Uh, I was also apprehensive about going anywhere that was far away from a hospital in case anything happened. I wanted to be able to get medical treatment as soon as possible. Uh, throughout, like I still grapple with these concerns regularly. I have taken steps to manage my anxiety and depression related to this issue. I regularly engage with my psychologist and I've been practicing uh, in a mindfulness program through rehab to hopefully further reduce my anxiety and depression about all of it. Um, despite these efforts, I am unsure if the fear will completely ever go away. I still am particularly fearful of becoming pregnant, though it's something I've desired for a very, very long time. It comes with new risks now. I am also terrified about the day that I'm going to come off medications <laughs> and maybe not need blood thinners anymore. And the possibility of having to have an open chest surgery to re remove the rest of the clots if they don't dissolve naturally is also very terrifying. Yeah, I would imagine that there's a lot of things going on in your mind right now. And I wonder, so I know that, you know, Thrombosis Canada is doing a lot of work to create awareness. And I know Dr. Carrier is, you know, heavily involved in it. Now, is that one of the components that Thrombosis Canada can help with you know, patients who have had the experience, I know you're bringing awareness. Is that part of the awareness is understanding the condition, understanding what you're going to do about it um, and helping patients like reduce their risks in general? Absolutely. Thrombosis Canada is an organization that's been around for a long time and more traditionally it was dedicated to clinicians. So people seeing patients with blood clots and trying to provide education, awareness, but also um, some clinical guides or some guidance on how to manage these patients over time. And over the past year, year, year and a half, we've been trying to involve patients more. So we have uh, patients-led committees now to help us with the patient 
information that we put on our website. We're trying to uh, provide some webinars for patients, trying to have a place where they can uh, exchange their own experience because we identified this as being an, an important knowledge gap. And clinicians are usually good to say or think they're good to say what patients need and what they understand and what they the actually the information that is required, but there's nothing like having patients involved to say, you know what, Mark, you didn't spend enough time of what I could do back for activity, for example, or if if I could eat anything afterwards. So having uh, information and insight from patients has been very valuable, and and we're trying to build that up on our website and through our different activities. And it sounds like a really important initiative. And it sounds like you know when you are diagnosed with any sort of condition especially one that can be life-threatening, you need to have those resources. And um, once again, understanding the compliance, understanding that, that you can have a normal life after this, I think would be a huge, um, you know, important thing to let people know. But because of my own background, I advocate, you know, as healthy living as possible. I have a question. Are there any foods that we should avoid should we maintain a level of exercise that will reduce our risk of developing a deep vein or an arterial thrombosis? Let's talk a little bit about that because I'm all about prevention. Um, and I think that's a good place to kind of start. Absolutely. So uh, being active, having a good healthy diet, uh, keeping uh, yourself hydrated are all important features to avoid having clots. We need to be mindful, though, that... Um, the link between, for example, a fatty food or high cholesterol and venous clot is not as well established as it is for arterial disease. And often there's not much that patients have done to that has led to the clot. And it's something that is, is beyond our control, surgery, cancer, pregnancy, trauma, these types of things. But after the diagnosis of the clot, obviously following the instructions from the different clinicians, but it's important to resume your activity as much as possible as soon as it's safe to do so to avoid chronic symptoms. So I always say to my patient, you know, you have clot in your leg or in your lungs, you won't be as good as you were before, but you need to get back to your activity. And that's hard to do because you can just imagine every, if you have a, a blood clot in your lungs that is life-threatening, every time you exercise, you have the same pain. It brings you back to the diagnosis. You don't want to overdo it. Uh, so these are important things to consider. So trying to provide as much information as possible, healthy diet before and after, uh, lots of activity as much as possible uh, before and after is is key to avoid uh, too much symptoms. Sometimes we, we can't avoid the complications, but we're trying to mitigate them as much as possible. And, and sometime, something Erica mentioned that we have a little bit more awareness now is, is mental health-related issues afterwards. There's lots of research following heart attacks and strokes. There's hardly anything following a PE or a pulmonary embolism. And it's more or less the same thing. It's a way of post-traumatic stress disorder, uh, something that happens that was a threat to your life, and then you're always worried that it may come back. So we need to take that seriously. And I think everything you're doing, Erica, is fantastic. And, and, and I'll keep that in mind for patients when they, they present with similar stories. 
Well, I cannot thank you both enough. Erica, I wish you the best of luck on this journey to getting yourself back to feeling like you are functioning optimally and 100% back to normal. Dr. Carrier, thank you so much for all of your amazing work and all the work at Thrombosis Canada. Now, if listeners want to learn more about the foundation, how can they do that? And if they want to learn more about the work that you do, how can they do that? Well, they can go to thrombosiscanada.ca. There's resources for patients and healthcare providers. And as you mentioned, we're a charitable organization, so anything helps. And Erica, if listeners want to learn more about your story, how can they do that? And my story is actually on Thrombosis Canada. If anyone wants to read it, they can find it on the homepage. And if you want to connect with me or you're finding that you need a little bit of support, I'm on Instagram. You can find me at cutie pie cadet. <laughs> Amazing. And you can always find me on Instagram at Claudia underscore Machiala. Um, that's my show for this week. If you missed it, go to 1059theregion.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, Amazon, and of course, Audible. I'm Dr. Claudia. Thank you for listening. I hope this helps you live your best life. The Wellness Prescription was brought to you by Healthy Planet. Order online at healthyplanetcanada.com or go online to find a location nearest you.